the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office slash music room for the sake of the cause. Well, today we're going to uh, follow the defense of Donald Trump and the indictment against Donald Trump and the ongoing trial to determine whether or not he will be impeached. We'll also share a classic interview, Parental Discretion Advised, with Mo Isom, author of Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. I, I promise you it's appropriate. We'll also talk in the second hour of today's program with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation on why the uh, why Washington, D.C. should not become the 51st state and altering the uh, Senate to make that happen is a bad idea. So he'll join us in the five o'clock hour. We'll look at that ongoing debate, which is is fascinating. It has the potential to change the complexion, if you will, of the U.S. Senate as a deliberative body. Well, the show of the Senate's second impeachment trial got underway yesterday. It was the stuff of Hollywood. The goal was to determine whether or not impeachment was constitutional. It was marked by a video montage of the Capitol riot interspersed with segments of Donald Trump's rally speech, which, although was cherry-picked, was relevant. It also featured House lawmaker Jamie Raskin, who had just buried his son, who'd taken his own life the week earlier. Uh, if it all it took to condemn uh, and convict Donald Trump of the charge of incitement of surrection was displaying the raw emotion of the accusers, then the Democrats certainly made their case. Well, the only question that was left is, what's the defense? Well, into this circus, Donald Trump's legal team timidly weighed in, and I emphasize timidly, clearly impacted by the emotional display, displays rather that uh, they had seen they weakly sought to present their arguments against the constitutionality of this uh, motive, this politically motivated trial, this uh, impeachment. Seeding the obvious, his defense lawyer, Bruce Castor, stated, you will not hear any member of the team representing former President Trump say anything but the strongest possible way. Uh, in the strongest possible way, denounce the violence of the rioters and those who breached the Capitol, end quote. However, Castor then went on a rather rambling and seemingly ill-prepared argument, where at times he even appeared to concede to the Democrats' narrative on the election being free from fraud. The American people just spoke and they just changed administrations, Castor asserted, adding that the American people were smart enough to pick a new administration if they don't like the old one, and they just did, end quote. A rather awkward statement from the president's former president's defense. Well, Castor's display was so bad that Trump's former defense lawyer from the first impeachment, Alan Dershowitz, exclaimed, I have no idea what he's doing. I have no idea why he's saying what he's saying. He further noted he's introducing himself. I'm a nice guy. I like my senators. I know my senators. Senators are great people. The American people are entitled to an argument a constitutional argument, and they didn't get it. Well, Trump was reportedly furious and beyond angry over Castor's abysmal display. 
And who could blame him? Castor certainly made no headway against the Democrats' uh, uh, impeachment gambit. In fact, if anything, he helped the Democrats who picked up a few Republicans in the vote over the question of the impeachment and its constitutionality, which passed 56 to 44. So the Senate did, as you know by now, a vote to continue with a trial to impeach former President Donald Trump. It continues today. And six Republican senators joined the Democrats to vote for the Trump impeachment trial. The final vote, once again, 56 to 44. Republican Senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, Bill Cassidy, Pat Toomey declared that the trial was constitutional. Now, that doesn't necessarily they'll convict him, but to move it forward uh, certainly says a great deal. They rejected arguments from Trump's lawyers, if you could actually find what those arguments were. Well, other than Cassidy, the five aforementioned senators voted in favor of holding the trial last month as well. Well, the House impeachment managers now have 16 hours over today and tomorrow to make their case against former President Donald Trump on the charge that he incited the mob that stormed the Capitol on the 6th of January. Now, according to multiple reports, they plan to show never before seen Capitol security for footage rather to uh, help make their case. There's something very compelling about that following an opening montage. Uh, to try to pin the blame of the infamous events squarely on the former president's shoulders. And while a Tuesday night report suggests that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell could still vote to convict the former president, despite voting against the trial's constitutionality, it is very unlikely that 17 Republicans will end up in that camp. Well, House uh, Dems are arguing that the GOP is solely considering the merits um rather urging the GOP to to solely consider the merits of the case and separate out uh, out their concerns on constitutionality. So it uh, it moves forward. And there you have it. Well, as I mentioned, uh, former President Trump is beyond angry with the impeachment defense team, um, apparently um, beyond angry over the performance in the second impeachment trial. The sources who uh, spent time with Trump, said that he was particularly incensed with the effort thus far by his attorney, Bruce Castor. He believes Castor gave a rambling opening argument. Castor's 45-minute opening remarks were widely panned on social media after he praised the House impeachment managers for a job well done. Ouch. Well, the American people just spoke and they just changed administrations, he went on to say. Well, President uh, Trump watched the proceedings from his quarters in Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. The AP, citing an unnamed source, said that Trump was impressed with the opening video presentation from the Democrats, which was not done within the um, uh, the chambers of Congress, but was done professionally by a law firm. It was very compelling and very well done. Well, confirmation hearings have been scheduled for the 22nd and 23rd of this month for Merrick Garland, President Biden's nominee to be the U.S. Attorney General, according to reports. Uh, Garland will appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee in hopes of winning confirmation to the cabinet post, which is the leadership position of the U.S. Justice Department. Well, the schedule makes a confirmation vote on his nomination likely for March 1st. Politico is reporting that... uh, Uh, The Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin and Ranking Member Chuck Grassley had agreed to that schedule. Well, in January, a spokesman for Grassley said that Garland's hearing would include questions about the current federal investigation into Hunter Biden, the president's son, who has confirmed that his tax affairs are under government scrutiny. Well, other developments, Senator Graham has blasted Senator Durbin over the Garland hearing request before the impeachment. Well, that's now been resolved. And Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland will face questions over the Hunter Biden probe in those hearings. President Biden has been uh, outmaneuvered by Germany's Merkel, 
That's according to a ex-Intel chief in the Trump administration. Biden's government has been outmaneuvered, he says. Um, Richard Grinnell, the former acting director for national intelligence for President Trump. You have to give it to Chandler Merkel. She outmaneuvered Joe in just three weeks. Merkel made it clear that she would not take sides between communist China and capitalist America, reverse the 10,000 U.S. troop withdrawal that Trump previously announced, and got the Biden administration to stop enforcing Nord Stream 2 sanctions. Last week, Biden froze the plan to withdraw American troops from Germany. In December, Congress passed legislation, the National Defense Authorization Act, that contains sanctions targeting companies and individuals involved in the Nord Stream 2 project. Well, that project deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, and his regime will transfer Russian gas to Germany via a pipeline running under the Baltic Sea. Critics say the project will ensure that Germany becomes dependent for its energy on Russia, a major adversary of the U.S. and Europe. In other developments, Germany is cautious to end their latest COVID-19 lockdown due to the risk of a more contagious variant. And a German panel doesn't recommend the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine for those over 65. Well, Mark Cuban has confirmed the NBA's Dallas Mavericks will no longer play the national anthem at home games. But wait, there's more. There's been a response from the NBA. Uh, the uh, NBA is requiring that all teams play the national anthem before games in keeping with longstanding legal policy. That's just one day after the Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban, told The Athletic the team decided not to play the song at home games. Well, NBA Chief Communications Officer Mike Bass released a statement today, just a day after Cuban's statement, saying that uh, uh, he had no... Um, when Cuban said he had no plans for the national anthem, but the statement from Bass with NBA teams now in the process of welcoming back fans into their arenas, all teams will play the national anthem in keeping with longstanding league policies. Cuban told the New York Times, we're good with that. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. Also, a reminder, coming up uh, later this hour, Mo Isom will be our guest. And we'll talk with Zach Smith, legal fellow for the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage, on why Washington, D.C. should not become the 51st states. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're winding our way through some of the top news stories of the, uh, the last, what, 24, 48 hours. So hang with us. One flashback um, was brought to mind recently. Obama defense chief says Vice President Biden was wrong on nearly every big foreign policy issue. Now, this is uh, President Obama's defense chief. Hmm. Meanwhile, Laura Ingram says uh, she's calling out to sanctimonious snitches who are turning Americans against one another in the age of covid and Biden, at least 36 people may have developed a more a rare blood disorder after receiving a covid vaccination. That's concerning. And White House Press Secretary Saki says schools with in-person classes one day a week count as reopened. <laughs> it's a rather interesting calculation. Meanwhile, PepsiCo is rebranding Aunt Jemima as the Pearl Milling Company. Coming to store shelves near you in June of this year. And NISA, the NYSE chief, is warning it may leave New York if a stock transfer tax is imposed. 
Another one apparently preparing to bite the dust. House Dems have proposed cutting off $1,400 stimulus checks to families earning over $200,000. I don't know how that'll affect the blends, but SEC is flexing its muscles as the Reddit trading frenzy continues. NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange are using SEC over planned overhaul of public data feeds. And seafood is riding the wave of sales increases during the pandemic. So have some fish and chips. Well, the Senate, as I mentioned, voted to move ahead with impeachment. Six Republicans joined all the Democrats in that vote. The predictable way the New York Times reported this, and I'm quoting, though the presentation stunned senators who lived through the rampage into silence, only six Republicans joined Democrats in clearing the way for the case to be heard. Byron York lists uh, some reasons he believes the trial is unconstitutional, but that is now irrelevant. The trial moves forward. Meanwhile, President Biden is talking about reopening schools one day a week. They continue to cave to the teachers union. Bethany Mandel explains uh, continued lockdowns are killing our kids quite literally. Meanwhile, more bad news for public schools and those pesky teachers unions, according to the most recent data from School Digger, a website that aggregates test score results. Twenty three of the top 30 schools in New York in 2019 were charters. The feat is all the more impressive because those schools sported student bodies that were more than 80 percent black and Hispanic and some two thirds of the kids qualified for free or discount lunches. The Empire State's results were reflected nationally in a U.S. News and World Report ranking released the same year. Three of the top 10 public schools in the country were charters, as were 23 of the top 100, even though charters made up only 10 percent of the nation's 24,000 public high schools. You can read more in The Wall Street Journal. Well, the GOP is warning President Biden, your border policy is leading to crisis. More than 50 House Republicans yesterday warned President Biden of a brewing crisis of illegal migration at the southern border with indications of a surge of numbers. Just as Biden has forged forward with a number of policies limiting border security and interior enforcement. This is not a political game. We implore you not to let ideology blind your administration to the need to secure the border, to defend Americans and to prevent a Another cartel-empowered humanitarian crisis, the letter says. Well, a California assemblyman is suggesting teachers stop paying dues as a means of influencing the, um, the reopening of schools. Whether or not that will be the case remains to be seen, a way of fighting back against the union that's keeping schools closed. And the World Health Organization to the world, Wuhan and COVID, just one giant series of well, coincidences. The uh, WHO's current hypothesis appears to be that SARS-CoV-2 virus, it jumped from a bat to some well, pangolin, cultivated in the pangolin, jumped to humans, and then left no trace in any other animals. All of this occurred, coincidentally, a very short distance away from not one but two laboratories researching coronaviruses in bats with absolutely no connection to either of those labs whatsoever. Well, the White House is throwing its uh, support behind California Governor Newsom as the state inches closer to recall. Meanwhile, uh, well, I'm, I'm not even going to belabor that again. Well, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, updated its mask guidance on Wednesday to include data from a recent lab experiment that found placing a cloth mask over a surgical mask, as well as uh, using a properly fitted mask, was effective in stopping coronavirus spread. Of course, you can't breathe and your life ends. But anyway, the update, which was announced by CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky during a White House coronavirus briefing, comes after a lab experiment using um, simulated respiratory uh, 
breaths found that placing a cloth mask over a medical procedure mask or using a medical procedure mask with knotted ear loops and tucked inside um, this decreased exposure to potentially infectious aerosols by about 95 percent. Well, the new guidance advises adhering to two important steps, namely making sure the mask fits snugly against your face, picking a mask with layers to um, keep your respiratory droplets in and others out. Additionally, the CDC um, advises using a mask with a nose wire, using a mask fitter or a brace to improve fit, and checking to ensure there are no gaps where air might flow. So apparently the best way to avoid contracting COVID is to just stop breathing. Well, no hugs or high fives. That's what the Olympic organizers are unveiling as um, the athletic rule book for the upcoming Olympic Games in Tokyo. The 33-page document also warns athletes that they could be kicked out of their events if they break strict antivirus rules such as socializing, handshakes, or hugs. So none of that. That's what athletes at the coronavirus-postponed Tokyo Olympics can expect this summer. The 33-page document, the last in a series of playbooks drawn up in the bid to ensure the games can go ahead safely, also warns athletes they could be kicked out if they you know, do what athletes would normally do in the heat of competition. Well, under the guidelines, athletes will be tested for the virus at least once every four days. They're going to be barred from competing if they return a confirmed positive test, of course. Uh, their time in Japan will be... Um, minimized to reduce the risk of infection and those staying at the Olympic Village will be expected to avoid unnecessary forms of physical contact. The organizers uh, said that they still plan to hand out uh, around 150,000 free, well, prophylactics to athletes, but the new rule book urges them to limit their contact with other people as much as possible. So the Olympic Games will move forward. Whether or not they're going to be spectators, that uh, wasn't altogether clear to me. We'll continue to follow that uh, that story. Well, select Oregon pharmacies are going to start receiving COVID-19 vaccines through a new federal distribution program this week, with the state's doses going to Costco, Health Mart, Safeway, and Albertsons during the program's initial phase. Already, there's uncertainty over just when the retail pharmacies will be receiving their vaccines, start scheduling appointments, and begin vaccinating eligible Oregonians. The confusion members the um, broader question affecting the vaccine rollout in general. White House officials announced last week that approximately a million vaccine doses would be shipped directly to 6,500 pharmacies across the, the country this week in the first phase of the federal retail pharmacy program with the possibility that vaccine, vaccinations rather could begin as soon as Thursday. You'll have to forgive me if I'm just a little bit uh, skeptical. Oregon Health Authority Director Patrick Allen, who's doing the best that he can, said that just over 130 pharmacies across the state of Oregon would receive a combined 13,000 doses this week, with about 100 doses going to each participating pharmacy. And I have to tell you, I'm in the throes of trying to register my 90-year-old mother. I'm not going to say much more about it because I want to make sure I have a more favorable way of explaining the challenges that I've faced thus far. Well, it's tax season, and this year's going to be a little wonky. We know that uh, you have questions about filing like the one, um, do we have to pay taxes on the stimulus payments? Well, the long story short is yes. You'll probably owe some extra money to the state or get a smaller refund than usual. Oregon is one of only a few states that lets you deduct your federal income tax that you pay on your um, 
state taxes. Now, typically that saves you money in state taxes, but here's where it gets confusing. Your federal tax liability goes down and so does the amount you can uh, subtract from your taxable income when you file your Oregon taxes. Now, to figure out how much extra you'll owe, multiply the amount you got in stimulus money by Oregon state tax rate, 8.75%. Now, the average single person who got would owe an extra $157 to the state of Oregon this year. The family with two kids who got $3,400 in stimulus money would owe $298 in Oregon taxes. Now, this won't apply to you if you make too little to pay federal taxes or too much to qualify for the state credit, but expect you will pay taxes on that stimulus money. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll share a conversation with Mo Isom. Sex, Jesus, and the conversations the church forgot. I promise you it's appropriate, but parental discretion is advised. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in her latest book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot, writes, Sex. I don't think we're talking enough about it. Uh, we're, we are obsessed with it. We're fixated on it. We're entertained by it. We think we're deeply all informed about it. We boast in the freedom we have to do what we want with our bodies. We tally the number of partners we've had. We've convinced it's necessary in a normal dating relationship. We're numb to the random hookups and one night stands. We want to experience it, tease it, taste it, flaunt it, waste, uh, worship it. While society twists, perverts, cheapens, and idolizes it, we, the church, are relatively silent about it, awkwardly stumbling around it, running from it, building desperate rule lists of do's and don'ts, and as a result, allowing the sanctity of God to be stolen by the insatiable lusts of the lost. Somewhere along the way, we've allowed ourselves to be drowned out by the con- drowned out of the conversation. Mo Isom is the author of Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Wreck My Life. She maintains a thriving nationwide speaking ministry, facilitates a faith-centered blog that has uh, garnered millions of views to date. She's a former All-American goalkeeper for the Louisiana State University soccer team and holds the LSU all-time goalkeeper record, as well as the number three SEC all-time shutout record. She trained with the U.S. Women's National Program, was honored as National Player of the Week, has been featured in Sports Illustrated, has appeared on ESPN SportsCenter's Top 10 Plays, Ellen, ESPN, CBS, The 700 Club, and countless other platforms. She and her family live in Atlanta, Georgia. She joins us today to talk about her very provocative book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. Mo Isom, thank you so much for joining us. It is my treat. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, when I first received the book and I read the title, my temptation was to just simply put it in the, no, we're not doing that uh, pile. But I was (laughs) intrigued. I picked it up and I started uh, reading the introduction and then reading through the book. And I think you're absolutely right in suggesting that we have allowed the world to sort of manage the conversation and the church has been woefully silent. And the cost, not only to the church itself, but to the culture in general, has really been devastating. What prompted you to take this on? Yeah, you know, I just, when I wrote my first book, Wreck My Life, it was it was my testimony of coming to faith, but there was such a big testimony, a sexual testimony in the mix of that story that I didn't want to sell short in, you know, just trying to squeeze it into that book. I knew it needed its own legs because I knew the conversations needed to begin. There needed to be some catalyst of... Uh, us really stepping up and talking about 
the realities of sex that we've avoided for so long and digging into the heart condition behind it and, you know, starting to talk about the roots versus just the symptoms. And it grew out of the fact that I wasn't taught or talked to about those very things, not well by my family and certainly not by the church. And so I struggled in incredible sexual fit um, and then even carried some of that into marriage and struggled with understanding sex and marriage. And I wrestled in my youth from eight to eight with pornography and, you know, just all of these different sexual issues that the world isn't afraid to shove in our face but people are hurting and broken and wrestling with, and they're turning to the church for answers and the church doesn't know what to say. And so it wasn't, this book wasn't so much an attack on the church. It was a calling up of the body of believers of like, we really have to equip ourselves here with understanding of what God has to say about sex and why it matters and how we begin and facilitate these conversations to help a hurting world. Absolutely. Certainly to help a hurting world, but also to make sure that those of us who proclaim uh, the name of Christ, that we understand the challenge even within the church. Now, this book isn't about statistics, but you share some in the early part of the book that are really very uh, discouraging and and shocking, although I suppose living in 21st century America, it shouldn't be shocking. You write that, did you know that 96 percent of young adults professed evangelical Christians included are either encouraging, accepting or neutral in their Uh, view toward pornography and don't see the use of pornography as sin. You cite another study conducted in 2016 that found that 82% of teens desire to have only one partner for life, but also found that only 3% of Americans actually wait to have sex until marriage. For women utilizing online dating platforms, 33% admit to having had sex on their first uh, online dating encounter, and one-third of the young adult population between the ages of 20 and 26 admit to having posted nude or semi-nude content Online, it, it goes on from there. And again, the book isn't about yeah. statistics. So this gives us some perspective on how the silence on the part of the church is is having an impact where there's a great need. Yeah, absolutely. And it it was dizzying, really, because I didn't intend initially to include you know research and stats and figures as much as I wanted to dig deep to the heart issues. Yes. But I couldn't look at those numbers and not see that man, we are massively biblically illiterate about sex. We're massively struggling as a whole, as a people group. And these these numbers are symptomatic response to heart issues that for some reason we're 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 staying silent about. And I don't know if, you know, we're silenced by shame because it's us in the church wrestling with the very same sin struggles behind closed doors. I don't know if we're silenced by a lack of understanding of, you know, how to talk about it or or worse, I think sometimes we're silenced by actually not knowing um, what God has to say about sexual sin and how incredibly he redeems it. We feel so guilty that we are, we're missing who Jesus really is and who he came to die for. And so I just saw those those stats and those figures, and I thought, man, if that's not evidence that we're all across the board right now in our sexual understanding, and we need to line up as a church in understanding and theological understanding even, but more so than that, in empathy and heart understanding and the ability to have these conversations within the church and outside of outside of the church to, to those who need to know that. 
crisis is there, is, is, is ready and willing to, to forgive and redeem. You make the point that in the midst of a sex-saturated world, we do not know as much about sex as we think, because if we deeply understood the physical, mental, emotional, and above all, spiritual definition of and implications of sex, I don't think these numbers would look anything near the same. I don't think they could, referring to some of the numbers that I referenced and and others that are in the the very beginning um, of the book. Where do we begin in understanding that, first of all, God is the author of this thing that we are rather that we find awkward in talking about and, and maybe don't understand fully? Where do we begin if we really want to understand what does God want us to know and, and how should we conduct ourselves and what kinds of conversations do we need? Yeah, we, we first have to begin by moving past uh, you know, shaking our frustrated fists at the world about our failing morality and rather addressing the aching, bleeding needs of people's hearts. It is not simply about behavior modification. Sexual understanding is about heart transformation. It's about understanding that the very first conversation God ever even has with man involves sex. It involves our inherent worth as image-bearing creations of God, and it involves beautiful instruction around sex. And if we can see that in the Word of God, that's the very first thing He addresses, we can begin to see, okay, then where did this all, where did it go off track? Where did we move off the rails here? We can understand more of our own heart condition that we, you know, are creatures made to worship, but we quickly choose to worship the created rather than the Creator. We quickly choose to worship sex or worship ourselves or worship our wants or our emotions or our lusts or whatever it may be. And, you know, when we choose to choose for ourselves what is best for us, we we can step back and see how that's led us down a path of hurt and brokenness because God always gives instruction with our best in mind. And so I think we have to start with understanding the nature of who we are as fallen individuals and understanding the goodness and the glory of what God has made for us in the gift of sex and why he put instruction around it. Um, because sex, sex in its proper form is a powerful weapon against the enemy. It is an act of worship. It is a beautiful gift. And God's gifts aren't meant to ever be burdensome or shame-filled or embarrassing or anything like that. It was always meant as an incredible gift. But we, we, we've chosen to choose for ourselves and we've led ourselves down a pretty, pretty deep path of suffering and the enemies have capitalized on it. And we're, we're all just now lost in the mess of this weapon God's given us, you know, for unification and for power and for beauty. And, and we've instead not known how to wield it. And we've injured ourselves and we've injured others along the way. Yeah, And we've prayed a pretty high price as individuals and collectively as well. We're going to continue our conversation. Uh, We're talking about uh, Mo Isom's latest book, Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. It's a better book than I expected it would be. And I would uh, recommend you read it if you're serious about really understanding the challenge and what God has to say about this thing that he himself has given to us. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Mo Isom. She is the author most recently of Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations, The Church for God. In the book, you write about um, much about your own story. Why was it important uh, for you to share that part of your story in talking about what is so often a very challenging subject for many within the church? You know, Scripture tells us that that sin is defeated by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimonies. There is so much power in our stories, in our testimonies, in the very sin that has bound and shamed us. If we can surrender that and leverage that, it's amazing what God will do with it for the kingdom. And so I guess I sort of got my sea legs under me doing that when it came to sharing my, my testimony of coming to faith, which involved eating disorders and suicide and um, of my father in a really horrific car accident. And I, I found a lot of courage in sharing that. And so then when it came to, you know, giving voice and words and life to my sexual testimony, um, we'd, <laughs> me and God had worked out that muscle some, and, and I didn't find it as challenging as I thought I would. Once I began to reclaim sex for the glory of God and, and stand up, I guess the enemy in using the very things that it bound me to bring glory to the king who set me free. It was amazing the power that it carried. Um, and I, I encourage anyone listening to do the very same. Um, it, it knocks the knees out from under the enemy of holding anything against us or using anything against us when we can simply have the courage to, to speak it, to release it, to give it to God, to, to find the forgiveness and redemption for it and then to leverage it for God's glory. There's a lot of power in that. You write about the idea of virginity being a works-based answer to a life surrender question. Uh, Tell Mm -hmm. us more about that and what we miss when we talk about virginity, which is an important subject, but maybe our approach is not as effective as it might be. Right. Yeah, I grew up, um, I'm sure like many, um, especially within the church, sort of making that virginity vow, making that, you know, proclamation, wearing the ring and, you know, getting the certificate at the weekend uh, retreat for with church. And um, I kind of, while, while virginity is certainly excellent and, and important, it is always intended to be a byproduct of purity. And where I fell short was that I sort of proclaimed virginity and waved that as my proud banner. But then when, you know, life happened and temptation became very real and I began struggling in sexual sin, I was proclaiming this virginity thing, thinking that made me somehow righteous or or still holy because I hadn't given anyone everything, yet I'm compromising everything I can behind closed doors. My question really to God was constantly, like, how far is too far? Mm -hmm. Like, what still counts as virgin or not? And that's never what God intends for our lives or our walks with Him. What uh, that question can become when we realize the fullness of what He actually calls us to in purity, purity in thought, purity in our words, purity in our actions, becoming pure vessels for Him to operate through, what that question moves from is, how far is too far to God? How close can I draw near to you? And and I think that's what God always desires the condition of our heart be. And for me, virginity was sort of this like checklist of things that I could do or couldn't do. It was rule following rather than relationship. But God cares far more for purity because virginity will 
be a byproduct or restored purity and, you know, transformed actions will be a byproduct of seeking first um, to be pure in our hearts um, because our actions are just overflows of our hearts. One of the subjects that we uh, we are beginning to talk about a bit more because it's becoming a, a growing problem is pornography. And as you point out in the book, mm-hmm. it's not just a problem for uh, men. It's a problem for women as well. Um, it's often yeah. talked about as though only men struggle. Uh, talk a bit about how we should approach this, first of all, in our conversation and then uh, in dealing with the, the challenge, because it is everywhere and so easily accessible. It is. You know, I think the first step is is understanding the extent of this of this giant we're facing. In twenty sixteen alone, in one year, on one pornographic website, and there's hundreds of thousands, but one, one site in one year, people consumed four point six billion hours of pornography. That is seventeen thousand complete lifetimes of pornography streamed in one year on one website. And so when we realize the magnitude of what we're dealing with here, it helps put into perspective that these aren't just, you know, college-aged unsaved males (laughs) that are wrestling with this. This is this is a, a struggle for men. This is a struggle for women. This is a struggle for children. The, the average age of exposure, nine years old, to pornography. This is a struggle within the church. This is a struggle outside of the church. Porn is rampant. And the biggest problem with porn is that it dehumanizes others. It, it, it steals the sanctity of sex as a precious thing. It dehumanizes others. We want and can get instant gratification to any and all urges. And we begin to see other humans as body parts rather than image-bearing creations of God. We lose sight of the fact that these are sisters and brothers, that these are people that we are exploiting for our own instant pleasure. And what happens is that that becomes addictive, honestly. It, it releases, I mean, powerful neurotransmitters in our minds that make us come back for more. And the porn industry knows this, and marketing people know this, and it's a moneymaker. And so um, the supply won't lessen until the demand lessens. Yeah. We the- have got to take control of our eyes, our hearts. We have to surrender these things and move out of this bondage. Uh, I wish we had more time. There's so much more in your book. But let me ask you as we close, what do people who have made sexual mistakes most need to hear? Oh, man, know that that God is in the business of redeeming that and using you for his glory and for his purposes. We see it with Rahab, the prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. We see it with the woman at the well, the first person compelled into evangelism. We see it with the adulteress to be stoned, that Jesus did not condemn her, but that his love transformed her, that she would go and sin no more. Know that God is in the business of redeeming sexual sin and desires to in your life, and then desires to use you in power, free of this shame, free of this guilt. He is for you. He loves you fiercely, and he desires wholeness and healing in your life. So we just have to bring it to the table and hand it over. Well, this is a serious uh, book about a serious subject. It's eminently readable. It's approachable. And I appreciate that you were vulnerable in writing it. And I think it calls the church to where we ought to be uh, closer to God and, and confronting this challenge together as the body. Mo Isom, thank you so much for talking with us today.
Thank you. Such a treat to be on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, the book is titled Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot. Mo Isom is a New York Times bestselling author, and the book is published by Baker Books. By the way, as I mentioned, she's also a um, a blogger, and you can find her uh, at moisom, M-O-I-S-O-M dot com, moisom dot com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. One of the ongoing debates in Washington that has become perhaps more real than in previous administrations and uh, congressional sessions is whether or not Washington, D.C. should become the 51st state of the United States. Now, a recent column in The Inquirer, it's a a Metro paper, um, posed the question in a way that raises uh, not only questions about the means by which this might be accomplished, but whether or not it's the right thing to do. And I've asked Zach Smith to join me. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation to talk about the uh, part of this opinion piece in which he argues that Washington, D.C. should not become the 51st state, particularly by the mechanism that's being considered uh, and it has the potential to change the uh, the nature, if you will, of the deliberative body that the U.S. Senate uh, is supposed to be. First of all, Zach, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on, Georgina. I really appreciate it. Well, let me ask the first question. Is this really about the Senate filibuster or is this uh, more a debate about whether or not Washington, D.C. Uh, remain a district uh, rather than a state? Well, I think right now in the current political climate, the two questions are really intertwined and you can't separate them uh, because, you know, the proposal right now is to make D.C. the 51st state uh, by a simple act of Congress. Congress would just need to pass legislation. Uh, presumably, President Joe Biden would sign it. And voila, we have a new state. Uh, now, I think there are grave constitutional issues with that. Uh, But before we could even get to that point, in order for this legislation to pass the Senate, uh, it's pretty clear uh, that Senate Democrats would have to vote to change the Senate's procedural rules and essentially uh, abolish the filibuster in order to pass this statehood legislation for D.C. And so, you know, I think it's it's unfortunate and dangerous uh, to proceed in this manner. And it really would fundamentally change the characteristic of the Senate as a body uh, if the filibuster were to be eliminated. Well, let me ask you, because I think for a lot of Americans who haven't thought about Washington, D.C., why it's a district of Columbia, why not um, establish Washington as the 51st state? Why did the founders uh, determine that carve out this little area in which they are segregated, if you will, from the rest of the country? Sure. Well, we really have to go back to history. You know, the founders wanted a territory that was exclusively under federal control. They didn't want to have to depend on state authorities uh, for protection. They didn't want to depend on state authorities for financial support, for buildings, you know, for things as simple as everyday public services. And if we go back to the founding, you know, you'll remember the Capitol was originally in Philadelphia. And unfortunately, at one point, a group of disgruntled soldiers uh, who wanted to be paid came, surrounded the Capitol, and the members of Congress asked the Pennsylvania governor to send out the uh, Philadelphia militia to protect them, and the governor refused. He didn't want any part of that. And so unfortunately, members of Congress had to flee Philadelphia in the middle of the night. And basically from that, they recognized and said, look, we need our own federal district uh, where we can be in charge. The federal government can be in charge of security, uh, be in charge of finances, and really be in control 
of the district in order to secure the safety of the federal government. And so that is one of the main reasons, one of the main driving forces uh, of why the founders thought it was so important to have a separate federal district uh, so that it wouldn't be beholden to any one state or interest and could provide uh, for its own safety and security. So what you're suggesting is this sort of notion that history matters, context matters? Well, history matters, context matters, and more importantly, the text of the Constitution matters. Well, there is that. Uh, separate, you know, just, just that minor detail, the Constitution, and I, I joke, just to be clear. Yes. But, you know, the Constitution is specifically says, contemplates that there will be a, a separate federal district. And, you know, when you read the text, in conjunction with the history and practice, uh, it's clear uh, that it wasn't meant to be just a, a de minimis area, you know, literally encompassing only the White House and the Capitol building and the National Mall area, but one large enough where the federal government could exercise practical control over it. And so you're absolutely right. History matters, context matters, the text of the Constitution matters. And unfortunately, I think this current proposal flies in the face of all of those things. I think it could be described as a, a raw power grab, and we'll get into that in just a few moments. But what do you say to those who live in Washington, D.C., uh, who are who argue that taxation without representation is tyranny, and they are somehow sub-Americans for living under this constrictor, if you will? What do you say to those within the district uh, who find that they're residents and they're somehow deprived of the full benefits of being an American citizen? Well, look, I think residents of D.C. do enjoy some unique benefits as well from being residents of the District of Columbia. You know, they really enjoyed unparalleled access not only to, you know, all the members of Congress, uh, but also much of the federal bureaucracy as well, federal executive branch officials. And so when the founders were setting up this system, you know, they contemplated that residents of the district would have closer access uh, to the federal government than really anyone else uh, who are United States citizens, uh, you know, you know, honestly, district citizens are also free to, you know, move a couple of miles down the road or up the road to Maryland or Virginia where they can get full representation. And look, if we as a nation decide that the district itself should have uh, voting representation in Congress, there are other mechanisms uh, for accomplishing that. Uh, you know, proposals been made to retrocede uh, part of the district back to Maryland, or even just to allocate solely for congressional representation purposes, uh, portions of the district to, to Maryland or Virginia. Uh, so there are other mechanisms, but if DC is going to be a state, uh, if we as a nation decide that it should be the 51st state, uh, then a constitutional amendment, in my view, would be the appropriate way to go about that. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. We've talked about the ends, but the means are as significant here as perhaps the end might be. I noted in your column, you refer to this as constitutionally dubious and a thinly veiled power grab of making Washington, D.C. a state via simple legislation. Let's talk about the means that are being considered here and what's at stake if they simply waive the filibuster for this provision alone or in general, in order to um, establish Washington, D.C. as a state? Sure. So if the filibuster is waived, uh, basically the Senate becomes just another House of Representatives. The filibuster right now, it allows any senator uh, to essentially, you know, hold up the proceedings, you know, to force debate on a bill, any legislation coming through the Senate. 
Uh, and uh, the Senate can only overcome that filibuster with a cloture vote. You know, basically a supermajority of senators agree uh, that they should override this filibuster. And so, you know, the filibuster has been a part of the Senate since really the early 1800s. Uh, it fits into the framers' design that the Senate should be a more deliberative body than the House, uh, one that should, you know, kind of slow things down, allow for more uh, thorough, nuanced debate to take place. And if the filibuster is eliminated, all of that goes away. And what it would mean is essentially to allow a majority of senators to ram through any legislation uh, that they see fit. And so, again, we're talking about really a fundamental change to the nature of the Senate itself. And also, I think it's important to note uh, that, you know, I refer to it as a power grab because if D.C. is added as the 51st state, uh, there would be two additional senators added uh, to the Senate. And right now, you know, I think certainly the, the Democratic senators are counting on those two D.C. senators uh, to be members of the Democratic Party. And unfortunately, I think, you know, the partisan considerations are, are really what's driving a lot of this debate. Yeah, sadly, I think you're you're right. What should we anticipate in the days ahead? Obviously, we've got an impeachment trial going on right now, but how serious is this move to consider statehood for Washington D.C. and waiving the uh, the filibuster, either in this narrow context or in general? Well, I think it's very serious and far more serious than it has been in years past. You know, last year the House of Representatives uh, passed on you know. Uh, pretty much a majority-based vote, the democratically controlled House of Representatives uh, passed this bill to make D.C. a state uh, via simple legislation, and it was only the Senate that stopped it from moving forward. Well, now, you know, the House of Representatives is still under democratic control, and the Senate is as well. And so I think it's really going to come down to a few Democratic senators like Joe Manchin of West Virginia or Kirsten Sinema of Arizona who have said they oppose any changes to the filibuster. Uh, It's going to be up to them to basically stay true to their words. And so I think it's important to, you know, for their constituents to let them know that this is an important issue. uh, And hopefully they will stay true to their words, you know, and, uh, really understand the larger stakes at play here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insight. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Zach Smith is legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the reality czar. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And after my conversation with Zach Smith, I'm concerned that we don't know enough of the history and the reasons behind the decisions made in our Constitution to support them and defend them moving forward. I appreciated that Louis Dubrow wrote uh, about the fact that our democracy is not at risk in the midst of all of our machinations, but our republic is. A lot of people don't even know the difference. He writes that after toiling amid sweltering heat, vigorous debate for months, the Constitutional Convention finally concluded. Elder statesman Benjamin Franklin, he emerged from Independence Hall into the autumn sunlight and was asked by a local woman, Doctor, what have we got, a republic or a uh, monarchy? Well, Franklin replied in his famous words, a republic if we can keep it. She actually understood what he meant by that at the time. I'm not sure we do today. One can be forgiven these days for believing America is a democracy. Politicians, media talking heads endlessly refer to America as such. Yet 
It's not now, nor has it ever been a democracy. In fact, James Madison, the father of the Constitution, warned in Federalist Number 10, democracies have ever been spectacles of uh, turbulence and contention, have ever been uh, found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, or have in general been as sort in their uh, lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And in 1814, John Adams wrote of democracy, remember democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Now, we may in the 21st century as a people decide we want to live in a democracy. We want to reject a Republican form of government, but that would be a departure from uh, what we currently have. The founding fathers saw democracy as little more than mob rule. And despite the months of Black Lives Matter and Antifa-led riots last year and mob violence at the Capitol two weeks ago, many still advocate for more democracy in our political system. Well, to safeguard against the excesses of democratic mob rule, the founders crafted a federal constitutional republic, implementing a series of separations of power, checks and balances, and vetoes, which allow for majoritarian rule while also protecting the rights of the minority and the individual. Now, it hasn't been perfectly implemented, but it's a system that anticipates the need for that kind of oversight. Well, the founders understood that in a pure or direct democracy, there exists a danger that um, demagogues or factious tempers and sinister designs would encourage public faction for their own selfish ends. But as Madison explained, delegating government power to a small number of citizens elected by the rest would refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of our country and whose patriotism and love of justice will at least uh, likely to sacrifice the temporary or partial considerations. Oh, would that uh, would be the case today? Or as uh, National Review's Thomas Koenig notes, the role of the elected representative is to harmonize the interests and passions of his constituents with the dictator, with the dictates rather, of reason and common good. This requires a certain independence of mind and spirit, as well as a hefty dose of prudence. We don't have many hefty doses of prudence today. Unfortunately, such a patriotism, independence of mind, and prudence is all too often lacking in our elected representatives of late. Although our Constitution and the Republican form of government it established has functioned remarkably well as uh, tempering the impulses of the mob for nearly a quarter millennium, many of the um, fellow citizens are eager to destroy our republic and replace it with pure democracy and socialism. Now, what's at stake needs careful consideration. A few months ago, Utah Senator Mike Lee triggered outrage uh, with two simple tweets. We are not a democracy, followed by democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish, rank democracy, can thwart that, end quote. Well, the response ranged from denial that America is a republic to the assertion that we are a republic, but a deeply flawed one. Writing in the Atlantic just before the election, Claremont McKenna, college professor George Thomas said, dependent on the minority of the population to hold national power, Republicans have taken a taken to reminding the public that we are not a democracy and have suddenly found their voice in pointing out that formally the country is a republic. Remember that uh, um, Pledge of Allegiance and to the Republic for which it stands. Suddenly, Republicans have been making their point for decades 
but it hasn't really resonated. Well, Thomas continued making a cogent argument as to how and why the founders constructed a Republican form of government that would foster a complex form of majority rules, not enable minority rule. However, Thomas then began to list what he sees as the failures of the Republican form of government, arguing that the greatest shortcomings of the American experiment was its limited vision of the people, which excluded black people, women, and others from meaningful citizenship, diminishing popular uh, government causes. Well, he has a point. This is a flawed experiment that has taken far too long to implement um, fairly. Uh, Thanks to near-unanimous Republican supporters for the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendment, but near-unanimous Democrat opposition, I will point out, save the 19th, which received but 41% of Democrat votes, these shortcomings were rectified. Well, today, Democrats now controlling the White House and both chambers of Congress, as we discussed just a few moments ago with my guest, Zach Smith, are threatening to eradicate two of the powerful mechanisms employed for more than two centuries to protect the rights of the minority, the Electoral College and the Senate filibuster. The Electoral College stood through this election, but the Senate filibuster remains a point of debate. They argue that these things uh, deny the will of the majority, as when President Donald Trump won a resounding Electoral College uh, victory while losing the popular vote. But if the Electoral College is abolished, then how will the rights of the minority be protected? Los Angeles County, after all, with a population of 10.4 million, has more people than all but the eight largest states of the union. Well, at a time when big tech and social media giants are censoring the um, half of the country that supports President Trump, or at least did, and Democrats are assembling a list of, of Trump administration officials and prominent supporters in order to publicly ostracize them and deny them employment, the rising dangers of democracy are quite evident. Well, John Adams rightly noted our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Now, ponder that for a moment. Only a moral and religious people whose self-interest is tempered by the interests of fellow citizens. It is wholly inadequate, he went on to say, to the government of any other. It was made for a people of temperance and moderation, not to contain a vengeful mob. Can we keep the republic? Do we understand what a republic is and why we should value it? Now, certainly the amendments that I mentioned just a few moments ago that were necessary to rectify great grievances in this uh, experiment were necessary, and there may be others to come. But to jettison the idea without fully understanding the history and reasoning behind it, what we're giving up, I think is a very costly process we need to consider very carefully before moving forward in order to grasp at and gain power to be sustained over a longer period of time. Temperance is something that we, uh, that we desperately need. Now, coming up in our next uh, segment, we're going to talk about the notion that has been seriously and is being seriously considered for a reality czar. You and I apparently are incapable of sorting truth from fiction, considering and weighing arguments made by others with whom we agree and disagree, And arriving at uh, not only what's in our best interest as a nation, but truth in general. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about this uh, idea that we have labeled one another by virtue of what we think might be true of others. uh, And hate posing as virtue that just will not uh, bend or seek unity. We'll get into all of that. We'll also talk about preparing for the days ahead. Things are going to get tough. And so what do we do to prepare for them? That's coming up 
uh, later in the program. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. There was a recent New York Times column that suggested, among other things, the appointment of a cross-agency government task force to deal with disinformation headed by a, in quotes, reality czar. Now, apparently, George Orwell's 1984 is no longer considered a cautionary tale, but for some, has become an instruction manual. Well, the truth is, a government that even considers the notion of empowering itself to define reality for the citizens it purports to serve is well, symptomatic of a culture that's denied the ultimate source and even existence of truth. Leighton Watts columnist uh, points out, it wasn't all that long ago, 2018, when Oprah Winfrey, matriarch of postmodern America, exhorted the audience at the Golden Globe Awards, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. A lot of people bought it. Well, the implied relativity of truth being yours and or mine was predictably parroted and fawned over by the entertainment uh, uh, media and other news media without a hint of consideration of the implications. What happens when your truth conflicts with mine? This unfortunate question points to the fact that two opposing views cannot simultaneously be true. It's if one is true, then the opposite is false. Well, at least that's how it used to be. Well, social media has made it possible with a click of the block button to never be confronted with ideas or people who don't subscribe to your truth. Well, the danger of this self-imposed intellectual and ideological isolation is only surpassed by the danger of the isolation imposed upon individuals by the arbiters of the technology once hailed as the new public square. When a nation's people lack a common understanding that there is such a thing as objective truth, we're left to squabble over the utterly subjected individual, my truth. There's only one way to declare a winner under a latter scenario, power, enter, the realities are. Well, this notion of individualized truth is a source of our elections, indeed our nation's acrimony. The winners get to decide what is true, hence for Uh, Many on the left and the right, partisan politics has taken on the fervor of religious zealotry. And can I just tell you one of my pet peeves is when I hear a follower of Christ make reference to my truth. We need to kind of think that through. Um, I mean, if we're just talking about what happened to me, that's one thing. But to refer to it as my truth, as though it was an objective truth that only applies to me and yours will be different. We need to be careful how we reference that. But I digress. Politics has supplanted true religion with the government serving as the ultimate decision maker. This is the very scenario the founders of this constitutional republic sought to avoid. Well, in drafting our Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson staked our nation's claims to its own birthright as self-evident truths and appeal to the source of all truth, which he referred to as nature's God, the creator, and the supreme judge of the world. I know these are arcane notions today, but without God, there could be no truth. When men seek truth, they find God. Now, this pursuit is the heart of all religion. Unsurprisingly, then, when Jefferson's protege, James Madison, drafted our Constitution and Bill of Rights, he firmly ensconced the role of religion in a free society. Now, he did so for the first time with two clauses of the First Amendment, ensuring each individual would be free from any one government mandated religion and remain free to pursue life according to the dictates of conscience, guided by his chosen religion or none at all. Well, this right of conscience is the heart of religious liberty, indeed, all liberty. 
This is why those who now seek the installation of a reality czar first sought to dismiss the free exercise of religion as nothing more than the right to worship in the recesses of our homes and places of worship, at least some. But the founders' acknowledgement of an authority higher than government as the source of our rights and of truth is the heart of American exceptionalism. It's not a reflection of the individuals that we are somehow better than the rest of the world, but recognizing and acknowledging an authority higher than government is the crux of American exceptionalism. Now, Mark Twain in the Bible, according to Mark Twain, said this, it doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move your job is um, to move your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Well, seeking truth in a society dominated by narratives, opinions and hyperbolic spin masquerading as fact is more difficult than perhaps any other era in our history. And we must seek anyway. Well, speaking truth when it conflicts with cultural orthodoxy, it can result in being canceled, publicly shamed, labeled heretics, and metaphorically burned at the stake. But we have to speak anyway. Living lives rooted in truth, no matter the consequences, when the fleeting whims of popular culture or the prevailing winds of public opinion lash against us, may deprive us of a life of ease we must live anyway. This is the challenge we face in the age of a reality czar clinging to what is true, clinging to the source of all truth. Well, this week in a whole nother uh, story, Ben Shapiro points out that Virginia Hefferman, she's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, unleashed the most perverse column in recent memory. The title, What Can You Do About the Trumpites Next Door? Well, Hefferman wasn't lamenting neighbors who had tagged her house with pro-Trump graffiti or had participated in the riots on the 6th of January or who had even held an election watch party and turned the music up too loud. No, she was lamenting the travails of living next door to Trump supporters who had cleared her driveway of snow. Now, I hope you grasp that this goes beyond politics, and it tells us something about our culture that all of us should be concerned about. She writes that Trumpites next door to our pandemic gateway just plowed our driveway without being asked and did a great job. This simple act launched Hefferman into a journey of angst and rage. How am I going to resist demands for unity in the face of this act of aggression niceness? She laments, I realize I owe them thanks, and man, it really looks like the guy back uh, back dragged the uh, driveway like a pro, but how much thanks? In order to justify the answer, she wants to give as little thanks as possible, because after all, these are evil Trumpites. Hefferman proceeds to speculate as to her neighbor's motives. Perhaps they only cleared her driveway because she and they were white. Or perhaps this whole event was a reminder that members of evil groups sometimes do good. She compares them to the Shiite terrorists group Hezbollah, Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, and the Nazis. If she treats her neighbors with too much decency, she reminds herself, that might make her like an upper-middle-class family from France who collaborated with the Nazis and lamented the Nazis' defeat because of their commitment to being polite. She seethes with the agony of cognitive dissonance. My neighbor supported a man who showed near murderous contempt for the majority of Americans, she writes. They kept him in business with their support, but the plowing. In the end, her solution is to be nice, but not that nice. She'll offer a wave and a thanks, but 
She's not ready to knock on the door with a covered dish yet. She unwilling, she's unwilling, rather, to give her neighbors absolution, ignoring the fact that they have not asked for absolution, nor do they require absolution for the great sin of voting differently and clearing her driveway of snow. Free driveway work, as nice it is, as it is, Hefferman states, is just not the same currency as justice and truth. The only way she'll be able to truly treat her neighbors decently is if they recognize the truth about the Trump administration and work for justice for all those whom the administration harmed. Then she'll be decent to her neighbors. Well, it continues. Her neighbors should immediately pile as much snow of, as humanly possible back onto her driveway, hose it off, and let it freeze. Well, the nasty <laughs> snootiness Hepperment evidences in her column is all too common these days. She obviously judges her neighbors not on the basis of what she knows about them, but on stereotypes she holds about all Trump voters. When faced with the reality that those who disagree with her can be nice and decent people who may not embrace everything that she um, characterizes as Trumpism, she, she simply dismisses the possibility altogether, justifying her own viciousness by referencing their supposedly radical political beliefs, which, of course, makes her the uh, villainous in this particular morality play. But she's too blind to see it. These days, tens of millions of Americans and are And so the social fabric continues to shred all in the name of depraved, unearned moral superiority. And that's the right phrase to apply here, moral superiority. Um, this is the challenge that we face in the midst of, well, a challenging season. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tony Perkins recently had an opportunity to speak with uh, Andrew Brunson, the pastor who spent two years in a Turkish prison, and uh, interviewed him about what he learned through that process. And I thought um, what he had to say about ways to prepare for the days ahead was very relevant to those of us who are facing um, the prospect of seeing religious liberty, which is one way of putting it, I mean, that's kind of a political term, but seeing our capacity to serve Christ faithfully being challenged in ways that many of us never anticipated. But Pastor Brunson um, says that wasting away in a Turkish prison wasn't how he would have chosen to spend two years of his life. But after watching the turmoil of the last um, season here, he's more convinced than ever that God is preparing or was preparing him for this moment and for our sake. He says that persecution is coming, and there's no great greater burden on his heart than to make sure Americans are ready for it. And again, I'm not I'm not trying to have a political conversation. I think if we know the scriptures, we know what's coming. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter what groups are in uh, in power. I mean, it matters, but the the names and faces are less relevant than the season that we're in and what the scripture tells us to anticipate. Faces, names, those are all going to change over the swath of time, but there are certain principles we need to consider. Well, looking back, Pastor Branson, he says, or Brunson rather, he never imagined his life mission would be advocating for religious freedom. He said, I thought I'd be in Turkey the rest of my life doing church planting. So his expectations were completely turned on their head. We need to be ready. When he was wrongfully charged and sentenced to life behind bars, he says he uh, he was broken. Nothing he said equipped him for the kind of persecution he experienced. I had counted the cost for some pressure, but certainly not for prison. 
Like most pastors, he studied the great leaders of the faith, but none of them really talked about how they coped with the suffering. Over time, he says that the despair broke him, and every time he broke, he had to get up again and learn perseverance at a deeper level. But there was a purpose to the pain. God allowed him to be broken like that so that he could be an encouragement to other people who are going to face persecution, people he warns, like Americans. He says waves of hostility are coming, and he believes God has sent him to give the church in America a message. There's a real sea change taking place in our country and this generation. The hostility toward followers of Jesus, which, by the way, is nothing new, is going to rise, he warned. It's nothing new generally, but certainly here it's a certain new, newer, put it that way. The hostility toward followers of Jesus Christ is going to rise, he warned. The pressure is coming, and it's coming very quickly now. Uh, He feels a sense of urgency. Pastors, especially, and influencers and parents need to prepare. Pastor Bunsen says, I believe a great sorting is coming to the church and there will be a lot of division. There will be a temptation to compromise since it's, it's already happening. One thing I want to underline from my experience is that those who uh, persecute are going to justify it by saying that we're hate groups, that we have a message of hate. That's going to be tough to take. People are going to say that Christians are a threat to society. We're already hearing that. You can't uh, work here. Your views make people unsafe. You can't use social media. You can't use your bank account, your credit cards, things like that. And churches, you can't keep your designation as a tax-exempt nonprofit. Compromise will be easy. It'll be an easy way out. Well, Jesus tried to steal his followers against that impulse by reminding them that he was hated. He said, look, they hated me, they rejected my message, so they're going to hate you and reject your message. The servant isn't greater than the master. He was preparing them. And that's why it's so heavy on Pastor Brunson's heart. He insists, I feel like we're not ready and it's going to shock people. So what can we do? What practical steps as believers can we take? He says, for starters, talk about persecution. Be aware that people are suffering, have suffered persecution in many countries, Americans have been spared from the uh, the fate because despite the sins of our country, generations still are faithful to God. That's changing. That's changed. So let's talk about persecution. Be aware of it and begin to prepare for it by equipping your children and people in your church. Let's talk about persecution. Pursue intimacy with God, cultivating a love for God that doesn't necessarily come naturally. We have to grow it. Now, this is the number one thing, he says, that fueled my perseverance. Back in 2007, he remembers, he started to pray that God would withdraw him, or rather would draw him closer to his heart, never realizing how badly he would need it. This is what prepared me for the difficult assignment that I had. God knew I was going to break. He knew that I would go right up to the point of failure, but because I had spent years running after his heart and drawing close to him, he also knew that even in my uh, my most difficult time, that I would turn to him. And I think this is an important phrase. It's the it's this intimacy that fuels perseverance. Do you want to know how to persevere? Pursue intimacy with God. Then he says we need to develop the right perspective and fear God rather than men. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. We know that God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. We know that he dwells in heaven. We know that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But we have next door neighbors who we see in the grocery store and drive their cars. It's difficult to fear um, God more than men. But Jesus said very clearly, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body and health. That wasn't an empty rhetoric. He was saying this to his disciples and most of them were killed for their faithfulness to Jesus. He was preparing them for what's ahead. Now, I'm not 
and Pastor Brunson is not suggesting most of us are facing martyrdom, but we certainly need to die to ourselves and look to God on a daily basis. We have a choice. We have to make the right perspective, we have to have the right perspective, and determine that we're willing to pay the price because there uh, may be a price as well. Then we need to determine ahead of time to follow Jesus. Decide now, what am I going to do if it's going to cost me dearly? Pastor Brunson says, if we make the decision now, then we're more likely to have an anchor to hold on to when the winds come and when the storm comes. Whereas if we don't make those decisions now, then when we're under pressure, we may not have the strength to make them. So you have to decide ahead of time. Am I willing to pay a price and begin to cultivate the heavenly perspective in order to be faithful? Or he wonders, are we going to fear the Twitter mob? Are we going to fear the consequences of obeying God and persecution? Or are we going to fear more the consequences of not obeying God, which is standing before him someday? Finally, he says, and maybe most importantly, although pursuing intimacy with God is consistent with standing on the word, we need to make the decision that we won't compromise the word of God, even if it costs us. Of course, to do that, we have to know what the word of God says. That means we've got to be in the word. One of the things lacking most in the Christian community today is biblical literacy. We know the word, we can read it, but we don't understand it because we're not in it. We're not studying it. We're not pondering and meditating on it. We've got to be in it daily. It's daily bread. We wouldn't eat just one day a week, so we shouldn't just study God's word one day a week. We should be in it constantly. Finally, he says that the goal isn't to create a spirit of fear. It's to remind Christians that God alone will sustain us that God alone will sustain us. We have to do our part, stay vigilant, prayerful, and steadfast. Listen to, my, uh, listen to me, my people, Isaiah 51 says. Hear me, my nation. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. Awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. Difficult days are here. Difficult days are coming. But we have hope in Christ Let's turn to him. Let's spend time in his word. Let's be ready. Our nation, our neighbors need him, and we are his ambassadors. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.